Hey guys, uh, this is Anna and Vicky here. In today's episode, we're going to talk about we are going to talk about up being uprooted. And I want to f- start with what uprooted means. So I'm going to read it <laughs> from dictionary. dictionary. Yeah. I'm sure you guys have not even seen a dictionary, but I'm old enough to know um, what a dictionary is. Um, and is to force to leave in a custom or native location to pull up from the ground. Being uprooted means you don't have a choice, but someone pulls you out from your roots yeah, and you leave that behind. So it's a very um, tough topic. So grab your tecito, tu vinito, whatever you would like to enjoy while listening. So these are two different um, stories of being uprooted. I'm an immigrant to the United States from El Salvador and Vicky was uprooted as well. So we'll we'll go into our um, different stories and also how it affected us and, you know, helped us become who we are. Although when we were going through the process, it was really hard. It was. So, um, so I'll start with my story. I am from El Salvador and um, during the 80s, there was a war. That's what everybody talks about um, in El Salvador, the Civil War. In 1983, it got pretty bad. My dad, in the 80s, um, all the U.S. companies left the country. And my dad at that time worked for Philips, which was an American uh, corporation. And he was an accountant. He had a his own office. He had a secretary. He he was um, my mom worked in um, a place called Antel. Back in the day, you used to have um, Antel is kind of like the AT and T, right? Um, if you're old enough, uh, you will remember that back in the day, they used to be operators. Kind of like you would dial 411 to get a number uh, for if you're looking for a number or if you wanted to make a collect call. Um, yeah. So my mom would be the person on the other side connecting that call to wherever you needed to yes she was the in between it's not like how it is today when you just a cell phone and it automatically does it digitally back in the day someone was on the other side punching in the numbers or like filling in that area to find that for you so dinosaur style right (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but we dinosaurs uh, had phones Um, but anyway um, so My mom was working, but my dad, when the U.S. companies pulled out, my dad ended up being unemployed and he started looking for another job. I mean, he was an accountant, so, you know, with a lot of experience, but the national companies of El Salvador kind of said, oh, now that your American companies left, now you're coming to us, right? So, no tough cojones you go ahead and ask America to help you because Mm. you are not gonna get employed 
and so um, that was it was hard for him to get a job and you know it was he had a family a house you know the war was happening in during that time I remember that there was an my mom's cousin who lived in us in in the United States um, she lived in the state of Maryland and my mom's cousin came to visit and because we lived in San Salvador the city uh, she stayed with us well I am sure you guys have this type of relatives where they go to their home country and they exaggerate about everything that they do in the United States she came and told my parents that she had a company that there was no need to speak English that you know ooh, she would make a hundred dollars a day and let's just say a hundred dollars in Salvadorian colones back in the dinosaur age was a lot of money. Yeah, like now El Salvador uses US dollar bills, but back in the day, they had their own money. They had their own currency, correct. Yeah. Um, and, and my dad was kind of like, well, it's hard to find um, a job here. And she's like, oh, you can come and, you know, you're an accountant. So, you know, numbers are equally in Spanish and English. You can find a job. And so, you know, my dad pretty much took that, took that story to heart and kind of said, oh, you know, is that easy to go to the United States? Um, at the same time, the war was getting worse. And, and I can tell you a little bit, maybe we'll do an episode about my experiences in the war, but the biggest, scariest experience that I, um, I experienced was I was going to school. I lived near the National University of San Salvador. I lived near the police station and the police station was full of the military and the university was full of the guerrilla and so on a maybe weekly basis they would try they would fight right and so one day i was going to school what's for those listeners that are not from el salvador what is the guerrilla like so the military is the government uh, and then the guerrilla was um, a movement that was, the history says that El Salvador had seven families. And those seven families control pretty much El Salvador. They owned the biggest lands and, and they were the rich. Mm-hmm. And people who worked the land did not own the land. So they wanted a reform where they could get a piece of land, become theirs, and they can you know, do their agriculture and sell their crops in their land, right? Okay. That's where the guerrilla was born from, from the people trying to get equal rights to the land okay um and then of course like many movements Mm -hmm. um it got corrupted right Mm -hmm. because then it became more of a political symbol and you know again I, i was a child one thing i can say was young people were disappearing and sometimes people say that the guerrilla took them and other people say that the military took them so both sides were harming the community both took arms and started killing and Mm -hmm. people died 
And I think to a point that it got where you didn't know who was who, right? Because everybody was kind of integrating both ways. And it became a very corrupt uh, war. Um, The United States helped the guerrilla and Cuba or other uh, European countries will help the guerrilla. So, you know, now it became an international war. Um, The United States provided weapons and other countries provided weapons to the other side. So uh, people who lived in El Salvador were the the victims of this horrendous war that went on for 10 years, I believe. But during that time, going back um, to to the story of the most scary story for me was I I was going to school. It was early in the morning. The lady who took care of me because my mom and dad worked kind of was walking me to the bus stop. And then at the end of our, you know, pathway stopped we were about to make a left or excuse me a right and then the lady who took care of me saw this red dot right on top of my head you know she started screaming and I'm like looking at her like what is going on you know I think she froze because I remember just that's when I noticed like the red dot going up and down my body and you know, finally she grabbed me and we ran back home. And I remember going, you know, we we went under the the bed. My mom had to go to work. I didn't know what was happening. And then all of a sudden you start hearing the bullet shells dropping on, on, you know, the roof of, of your home, the sounds of the bullets. And I remember my mom needing to go to work and you know, she put a white handkerchief, you know, in a piece of wood. I don't, I don't remember what it was. I think it was the umbrella and she tied it and she said, I have to go to work. Cause if I don't go to work, cause she worked for, again, you know, the, the AT&T, company. the phone company who was owned by the government. She said, if I don't go to work, they're going to think I'm, I'm guerrilla, you know, and, and, and I'm, I can be killed or so she had to go under that, you know, the bullets and the fighting. And what I found out later was that that man, whoever, you know, pointed that gun to my body, save our lives. Because what happened was he was telling us, if you don't, don't go, don't keep walking because it, it was a police officer. I, I know it was the military because that was the military station. So um, if we had continued going to the bus stop, we would have ended up in the middle of the conflict. I know that people die. I know that children that were waiting for the school bus die. So believe it or not, whoever that individual was who pointed the gun at us um, save our lives how old were you um i was probably 10 11. okay so um so i can remember right i can remember and that was traumatizing so pretty much with everything that was going on uh, my dad decided to leave Um, and take the journey to the United States Um, at that time undocumented Um, so his travel was um, a traumatizing event but he made it to the other side and and went to my 
mom's cousin's house who had pictured the United States as this wonderful land of opportunities, which it is, but not until, you know, you have gone through a lot of hard times. And then my dad realized, oh yeah, you'll get paid $5 an hour, but out of those $5 an hour, you have to pay taxes. You have to pay rent because no one in the United States is going to make you uh, live in their home for more than a week or two. Uh, there's a saying in our Salvadorian community or maybe Latin America, a los tres días el muerto lleve, um, which means three days and then, you know, the dead starts stinking. So start paying and helping because or move out. So my dad also figured out that he could have been an accountant in El Salvador and it didn't matter here. And his first job was a dishwasher. That's what he became. And um, he missed his family. He was worried about his family. And he wanted his family here, but he he didn't want his family to go through the ordeal, right? Of crossing the border. It was so dangerous. So my dad went to the embassy of El Salvador. And, you know, of course he thought, again, he has his degree, he has experience, they will consider him for a position. But at those, at that time, the embassy of El Salvador was very, um, and this is not a fact because I don't know, because I was a kid, um, but stories my parents tell me, right, that the embassy was full of people related to the government members in El Salvador. So it was not easy yeah. to get a job. So the only opening that was available for the um, for the embassy was the janitorial oh, yeah, position. Janitor. So my dad became the janitor of, janitor of the embassy of El Salvador. With all the skills he had, with you know, my dad, one of the things we're, we're like amazed with my dad is his handwriting, right? Oh, yeah. It's amazing. His penmanship is ridiculously nice. Um, but that's what they made him do. But that also gave him a chance to get uh, diplomat status. Yeah, that. if you work in the embassy, even if you're the janitor, mm -hmm. you get a diplomat uh -huh. um, passport. When he got the diplomat passport, he said, yay. Let's get our, you know, I'm gonna get my family. Mm -hmm. I think the issue with, so my dad talked to my mom and kind of said, okay, you know, he was still living with my mom's cousin in Maryland. And so my dad and my mom talked and, you know, they, they said they're ready. Um, and my mom sometimes, um, the truth is not her best friend. <laughs> So in a way of um, either denying or protecting you, she, um, she uses untruths or hides things. So what she did, tell us that we were gonna come to the United States to visit my dad. And it was December. We were in December of school break. So my mom said, you know, you know, start packing because we're gonna go visit dad. At that time, my sister was two years old, I believe, and my brother was 18. Oh, and the other thing was, the other reason why we were coming to the United States was because my brother 
was 18 and my mom was afraid that either the guerrilla or the military we were going to take him away and so because at that time boys who were teenagers sometimes never made it home right Mm -hmm. they were taken and and, recruited and brainwashed and then you know they either appear dead if you don't comply or they became either guerrilla or military Um, so there was no choice for these kids so the other reason why we were taking the trip was to come and bring my brother but my baby sister my mom and I were gonna return so I remember um, you know my best friend at that time, um, Celita, um, I remember she was crying. Um, and, and I said, don't cry. I'm going to come back. And she kept saying, no, you know, um, people that go to the United States never come back. Cause you know, by that time, a lot of people were leaving and I said, I'm coming back. Um, I, you know, we left everything you know I left my toys I I left my bed made I left my um, and every time I talk about this I I get very emotional because I think it's one of the most traumatizing or significant item that I left when I was a little girl um, I had a doll and she you know again I can picture her in my face you know she had curly hair blonde you know, um, she was made, she was soft, but her arms and, and her legs were plastic in her head. And if you press her arm, she would, you know, like the air in her mouth would kind of kiss you. Like it would suck your cheek. So she, you know, she was my friend. She was my best friend. I slept with her every day. I, I cried with her every time, you know, um, it was a scary time because of the war. She was there with me and I left her on top of my bed. I left her on top of my bed and then um, my mom could have told me to bring her and not lie to me, but she didn't. She knew how much I loved that doll. So coming to the United States, leaving everything behind, your toys, your clothes, your most precious items because you thought you were gonna return, I think was the most painful event in my life. Um, And I think something that you know, it, it has two meanings, right? It, it became the greatest opportunity in my life because what came after. But during that transition period, it was the most, it's one of the greatest hardships I have ever had. And to this date, I still picture that doll and I tear up every time. I know. It's like so hard not to hug you right now. <laughs> Um, and it is, it it has maybe given me strength, you know, but anyway, so that is the, the, what's uprooting, right? Something that you didn't have control over it, but it happened. And even if it was for the best, because I'm sure probably, you know, um, I don't know, we could have been dead. I, I don't know. It, um, it had to happen 
but it was painful. Being uprooted does not mean you have to be uprooted from a different country. You can be uprooted from one neighborhood to the next. And I think, um, again, Vicky, tell us how, you know, what your experience, yeah, your your experience (laughs) and how it affect, you know, how you, your traumas um, from that experience. So everyone, I am the baby. If you didn't see on the first episode, I am the last. I was the one that was born, the oops, that was born in America. I was born in 1990, 90 baby year. Um, So definitely I was born and raised in Maryland my whole entire life. And if we're gonna get pretty specific and demographic, like where the area I was born and raised in, it was more of the Silver Spring, Wheaton Glenmont area. That was where most of my childhood childhood is at. Like those are the memories I have. So I was in my mind, I lived in an area where it was pretty um, pretty brown. Re- re- remind our listeners, um, what was your nickname, Rapunzel? <laughs> oh gosh. My nickname in my family was is cheeky. Cheeky means little, little chicken, little that was me because I was always skinny and scrawny and I had glasses. So you can definitely put me as like Chicken Little, the movie. So I was, that was me, very nervous, just following along with the crowd, never going outside my means. So living where I was, I always, um, everyone around me was brown. They were Latino, they were black, Asian, like I... I was like, okay, this is fine, no problem. I'm in a pretty diverse area. Of course, there was white kids too, but it wasn't like I didn't live with that notion of segregation or racism or being different. I lived in an area in a community that I would always find someone that was like me or that had the same skin color as me or had parents that spoke Spanish and I knew a little bit of Spanish, they knew a little bit of Spanish. and um, So I didn't feel any kind of two ways about it. I lived in the Silver Spring Wheaton Glenmont area for 12, until I was about 12. 13 is when I moved, and this is not uprooted, this is literally I just moved, but I could tell the difference of what was going on in life. Um, to the Rockville area. And it was uh, definitely, I still found people that were like me, you know, they had their immigrant parents that were from a different Spanish speaking country, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, whatever. But there was more white. That was something different for me. And I think also the, the economic status was different. Yes, it was a complete different world. I was like, what, there's a lot of white kids here. And there's a lot of people with money. So it's not normal (laughs) what I was raised and known, like what I remember where I was when I lived in the area I was. So I felt the difference, but it wasn't a huge change because I still found the crowd of 
just say, oh, you know Spanish? Yeah, I know Spanish. Where's your mom from? <laughs> the Spanish like, people. <laughs> yeah, we were the Spanish kids, the Spanish kids. And we were like, all right, cool. So that was, that was just what we were. Um, and I, was, I lived there until the end of sophomore year of high school. That is where my uprooting changed completely. It was entering my junior year that summer before my junior year of high school. I had moved in with my parents, mommy, but I was no longer with Anna uh, W. I moved and I went in with my mommy, papi. We, they still had the old house in Wheaton Glenmont area, but I think so. So I think Vicky. So my parents, my mom, always dreamt about having a home. Mm-hmm. And my parent, my, my dad had purchased a, um, my parents worked really hard, but my father purchased a condominium. Mm-hmm. In the Wheaton Glenmont area. And, you know, my, my dad was fine in the condominium. It was very central. It was near, you know, transportation. It was near, you know, um, the market, the Latino market. We have always lived in the Latino world, right? Mm -hmm. But my mom always wanted more, right? So she wanted that white picket fence dream that we're all given. Exactly. So, so, so for example, one of the reasons my parents never went back to El Salvador, um, and, and we ended up staying is because my mom didn't want to go back to El Salvador in her mind empty-handed, right? Mm-hmm. I cannot return with empty hands. And a little backstory, my mom is one of those people that lived her whole entire life of what will the people think? What will the people say? What will the people see? Like she had to, she lived off of what other people's opinions were. And, and so I think what happened was that my mom Again, her dream was to own a home. Mm-hmm. And although she owned her condominium, she still was having this um, idea, right? And my sister, our middle sister, wanted a home as well. By that time she had moved out, she had gotten married, created her life. The only child left at home was me. Yeah. And that was me. I was, by that time, I was about 15, 16. And during that time, actually, I was going through um, a very difficult time um, in my life. And I'll talk later about that. But it was, say, a, a difficult time. So I had stepped out. I think I, at that point, I was not kind of, I, I needed to work on me and what I was going through. But my sister, and actually I went with my middle sister because I was also trying to move. And we went to West Virginia, y'all. Wild and wonderful. <laughs> and at that time, people were moving to West Virginia because the housing market was so expensive. And people talked about driving you know, with no traffic back to Virginia or Maryland with no problem, right? And they could afford these beautiful homes. Three-story house, basement, you know, the fencing and the yard. Pretty much, uh, my middle sister was kind of the first one who said, oh my God, I can afford this place, you know, 
Uh, we can have a home. She had, you know, she had started her family. Mm -hmm. She needed a bigger place. And she knew that if she stayed in the Silver Spring area. And then I thought about it. And I actually went to see a house. I remember that. Yeah. But I hated that. I hated the fact that we were driving every weekend to West Virginia. <laughs> and at first I didn't really notice other than the socioeconomic status, I was like, wow, this place is poor. And mind you, when I when we were moving there, they told me that this was the town, the city of this area. So we were moving to Martinsburg. Yeah, so I was like, yeah, no. So when, you know, again, um, I, I went to see it and I ended up saying, well, let me see, I mean, if, I need to find a job before I move. I am not gonna move and then find the job. I That's exactly what I said. I said, if I find a job in West Virginia, I'll, I'll move. People, let me just tell you, if I had sold my house, I would have bought a house in West Virginia cash, pretty much. I mean, it was like, it was that good of a deal um, in comparison. There was no jobs. Mommy and Papi were like, this is our chance. This is our opportunity. My dad was like, this is what I can give my wife the house that she's always wanted. So my middle sister moved. Went to buy her home. You know, she was living her dream. Wonderful, raising her family. And I remember when we went to go visit her house, she lived on a two-way street before turning into her in her neighborhood. There was a two-way street to get there. And and then I saw this building. Like not even a building. It was like another shack, like another house. There was a big sign and it was a strip club. I had never seen a strip club, y'all. Like now that I'm older, I know that strip clubs are usually like in DC, Upper Marlboro. Like if they are in Maryland, they on the DL. Like you don't, you don't just see it on a two-way street, just like a store, like that. Mm -mm, you don't do that. Like I didn't know that existed, but there it does. So then you go further up the street, maybe half a mile up, maybe another mile up the street. And then there's an elementary school on the left. The fuck? I, my world was turned upside down. I was like, how are you going to have a strip club right there? And then you will have an elementary school over her. Like, it made no sense. I don't know if it was elementary or high school. I don't know what it was. But there was a school. So, we go and we see my sister's house. She's so proud of it. So happy. And, you know, I was happy for her at that time. Because I was like, wow, you're really getting your dream. Go you. But I was miserable inside. I was creating all this hate. Why? Because you're a high schooler. You know, you're like, damn, you're gonna take me out my realm, like away from my friends. Like, look at this trash place. If you're from West Virginia, I'm so sorry. This is all about my feelings of how it was living there at the time and point in my life. Um, I'm pretty sure there's beautiful things there, but I think what, for this context, I hate. West Virginia. <laughs> I hated it so much because it was taking me away from the element that I was so comfortable in. It was change. And in a high schooler, you don't do change well. 
unless it's a change you want for yourself. But once it is being put upon you, you don't want that. You don't want something forced. Even as an adult, you don't want something forced onto you. And, and I think as, as parents, if you're a parent out there, I know that you know what's best and, and you know the opportunities that will come with your decisions. But it's important to process it with your teen or your child, right? As best as you can. If it's not a choice, it's not a choice, but process through it, explain it, let them know, right? What the reasoning. I think Vicky was dragged back and forth, but never, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. no one sat down with her and say, what do you think? No, it was more of, honey, we're moving here. You know, we can't afford to live here anymore in this condo. Um, we want to give your mom the house that she deserves. And, you know, this is the only place I can do it. So this is where we're moving to. And, you know, you're going to be with your sister, your middle sister, and mom's going to help her with the baby. So that was kind of like the talk I got. And obviously I was not happy. So, moving on to my parents' house, um, they had sold the condo, we had bought the house in West Virginia in a different, completely different neighborhood on the different side of the town than from where my middle sister bought it. Um, I was happy for my parents, but again, my anger and my disgust masked that all. It just took over. I definitely wanted to be happy I wanted to say hey I live in this great house but I focused a lot on that so while living there my family would come to visit and then obviously Anna (laughs) noticed some things that my parents thought was really like normal teenage stuff like American teenage stuff I made sure that no one saw my hurt if I was hurting I would make sure that I wasn't I, in my mind, I didn't think I was spilling it, but according to Anna, <laughs> it was everywhere. <laughs> it literally consumed my life for those two years. It consumed me in every aspect. I was depressed, and nobody could tell. Only <laughs> Anna when she came to visit, was the only one that could tell I was depressed. But she couldn't do anything about it. Not until after I graduated. But, at the time, that was my misery. That was my uprooting. Was being uprooted from a state that I felt comfortable to another state that was completely different and showed so many things that I was naive to, and I didn't know how to deal with any of that, but to get angry and depressed. And and again, one parallel to, to the stories, right, is the fact that I was never told we were coming to stay. Vicky was told they could not afford their, um, their condo, which is not true. You know, that the, the condo, take her for it. It was just the fact that my mom's, in, in my mom's perception, she needed 
to get a home because she had been in this country for so long and she had not accomplished that goal. And what are people going to say? At the end of the day, I'm happy that my parents were able to experience having their own home that they always dreamed of. And as you can see, Anna and I had two different versions of being uprooted. But at the end of the day, we both have these traumas, these scars, emotional scars that we carry with us and that we're still healing over time. Um, I'm really happy that you guys were there with us, listen to us and see where we came from. Please tune in next Wednesday for a great episode where we will be talking about a topic that's going to make people a little bit uncomfortable. Yes, we're going to talk about one of our taboo topics. And as always, it's unscripted. So hopefully you'll join us with your tecito, cafecito on Wednesday for another episode. Thanks for listening.